it applies to the accountants. I can say that for sure because I have so many conversations with accountants where we're looking for old documents and the response back is, yeah, it's in storage somewhere. I'm going to have to go drive down to the storage unit and dig through doc, dig through boxes to pull out those records. And I'm like, I don't understand how that's possible, but okay. You know, when you have them, it's please It's not tell the me. way to fly, folks. No. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing well. I am uh, I'm, I'm in Phoenix today meeting with some clients, so the road show has, has ramped up again mm-hmm. in a COVID-appropriate way, of course, but... yeah. That that city up north, that that city up north of us, that's you know got that other university that's not the University of Arizona. It's not a wild. So I hear. <laughs> I didn't go to. I didn't. I grew up in this state, and I didn't go to either of those universities. So I actually don't understand the in-state uh, U of A ASU rivalry. So to me, it's a little humorous when I hear people talk about it. So I'm like, oh, okay. I can see you're passionate. <laughs> as as a double wildcat. With my mom, who worked 30 years at the U of A, I basically was a wildcat coming out of the womb. Uh-huh. I, I have that rivalry. I have that you rivalry. Couldn't ex- you could not escape it, could you? Nope. Yep. There is, there's, there's a no billboard. There's a billboard. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a billboard on ITN between Tucson and Phoenix that some person who obviously loves ASU put up that says something like, no pity for the kitty. And then it has the score of the most recent ASU U of A football game, which obviously did not go in U of A's favor. So they're very passionate fans, willing to fork out their own money for the purposes of rubbing it in the face of the other fans. Yeah. I I don't like that billboard. I don't like that billboard. Because, well, I think that game was like, what, like 60 to 70 or something. It was absolutely horrendous to watch. Um it was yeah. it was at seventy to seven. Okay. <laughs> I only know that because I've seen the billboard. Assuming the billboard is accurate. Yeah, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. But but you know, there's usually basketball. We'll see how basketball goes this year. And there's all the other good sports. So and we've we've got it. We've got don't we? Don't we have a new football coach, don't we? Yeah. I think we do. Yeah, we have a new football coach this year. So it's it's coming. You have it coming. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. yeah. It's cyclical. Don't worry about it. Well, speaking of cyclical things and passions, uh, we're joined by Marty Shankman today. Uh, Marty is the owner of Shankman Law in New York. Marty is many things, uh, but among those is a very excellent estate planning lawyer. So we're very excited to talk to Marty today. So Marty, thank you very much for joining us. Happy to be here. I'm now unmuted. <laughs> I got I got to interrupt the show, and I got to tell you something. So this this school up north stuff, I went through it in a different context, and I must share this. So I I went to U of M, and that means University of Michigan, not Maryland. Yeah. It's not Testudo and the Turtle. I went to U of M. I did a lecture for the Estate Planning Council in Cleveland one year, and when they introduced me, they Gave my whole little bio and everything, which was kind of, you know, too much. But they, it was weird. They, like, left out my MBA. And then after the introduction, somebody, the, the person introduced me in a really snide, obnoxious way. He got an MBA at that school up north. You know, it's, 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 it's like, you know, they can't, can't mention the name. And then all these, like, adult seasoned professionals with gray hair, you know, the, the, the zippered up three-piece suit kind of image, they all started hissing and booing at me. Wow. Before my speech. Ouch. Next year when I lectured at, at Notre Dame, I wore a U of M t-shirt down there. 
So nice. when I went to the gym, I was working out my U of M t-shirt. That was almost like a life-threatening experience. I think I would get more life insurance before I did that, speaking of estate planning. Yeah, okay. Very, I had very to add wisely. that. Me. I, had to, I had to add that. You, Arizona is not the only place with school up north issues. <laughs> no, I've noticed that. I think it's hilarious because both schools that are such great rivals are literally owned by the same entity and run by the same entity. They're both run by the Arizona Board of Regents. You know, it's like they're the same entity, just like two different brands. It'd be like if two divisions of Coca-Cola were huge rivals of each other and they put billboards up on the, the interstate and, to, to. And by the way. None of this compares to if you go down south, I think like Alabama, oh, yeah. where they don't have a professional football team, and college football, it's mm-hmm. maybe like a hair's notch below the church. I mean, talk about yeah. – <laughs> it's almost another religion. I mean, the people are so passionate. I've never seen anything like it. I believe it. Mm-hmm. I, got a, I got a very small taste of that because I went to law school in Texas, and I learned that in Texas they take all things football very seriously and very different – on a different level to the way that we enjoy it or – consume it in Arizona. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks like that all over. Yeah. My, my, one of my most, uh, or one of my strongest memories from living in Texas was one evening. It was, it was in the fall and the world series was on and I was driving home from the law school and I was trying to find the world series on the radio. And the only thing I could find on the radio were high school football games. I could not <laughs> find the world series. That's the priorities, though. That's it. That's it. it. Mm-hmm. Well, Marty, one of the things that uh, we thought would be fun to chop up with you, even though you know we could talk about almost every topic with you because you're well-versed in all of them in, in the estate planning arena, is kind of the, the digitization, so to speak, of the practice, uh, one from a, a, a practice, a law firm, client's perspective, and the second kind of from a interfacing with the world business development marketing perspectives. And I know you're, you know, you're pretty active in, in all of those spheres. So I'm very happy to chat with you about those things. So maybe on, maybe to kick it off, just to talk a little bit about the actual practice. You know, if you had to put on your, uh, your nostalgia goggles here, looking back, say 10 years, what, what do you think has been the biggest change in your practice on the digital side of things? It's, it's actually interesting. And 10 years is the right time frame. I, I was at, um, the Hector Institute, I think in 2010 or 2011, I forget which year. It's my 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 advanced age. And Jonathan Blotmacher spoke. Um, I think it was the wrap up session about the practice of the future. Maybe not the wrap up session. And I drank the Kool Aid. And I don't know. I didn't even. I I don't know why. But I I, I came back to my office and went on a rampage to try to get paperless as fast as we practically could. And um, it was an incredible uh, uh, expenditure in terms of finance, financial cost and time. But we started the process of going paperless, not no paper, but less paper as rapidly as we could. And it really transformed my practice. And that was something that we started more than a decade ago. And I can tell you that along with a bunch of other things, but that was a big part of it when COVID hit and we were forced to work remotely uh, pretty much the whole time. Um, by virtue of us being 98% paperless, 99% paperless, uh, it made that whole process much, much easier. We didn't miss a beat. And um, in terms of profitability, eliminating administrative tasks, going paperless was huge. I had never realized 10, 11 years ago when I started going paperless 
how much administrative staff and time was spent on shuffling paper. You know, we used to keep original wills because there's this theory, which I think many practitioners still hold, that if you have an original will and somebody dies, the family comes back to you and you get the probate work. Um, as we were starting to go paperless, I found that times had already changed significantly, I think even more so now. And oftentimes what we found is we didn't get the probate work, but the family would come back. We'd have to figure out which of the fighting children uh, or heirs were, were entitled to get the will, you know, who was named executrix or executor and who wasn't. And we would spend hours of time just getting rid of a will so that we didn't get ourselves in hot water with the warring factions of the family. So, you know, I, I think getting rid of that was a huge administrative um, uh, saver. And, you know, to, to store and document and log in and log out original wills, it took a lot of staff time. And as we went paperless, we found we needed less staff. And if you fast forward till COVID, I think that the last impediment that we had in being more paperless, uh, or maybe that's the wrong way of saying it, less paper, closer to no paper, was not us or technology, but client attitudes. And and the one sort of silver lining to the COVID cloud, and I, I don't mean to say that in a disrespectful way. I know there's lots of people that have died and suffered terribly. But, you know, the one benefit from that to practice, and I don't think it's unique to me, I think it's universal, is that clients that had a discomfort with doing things electronically embraced it, probably not because they wanted to, but they felt they had no choice. And tons of clients that used to want everything mailed to them and that would want to meet in person very quickly adapted to using web-based meetings. And you notice I didn't say Zoom because there's other other vendors. Uh, web-based meetings and, um, you know, reading email and downloading documents and so on. So that really accelerated even further the um, reduction of paper and the efficiency of operating. We, we even during COVID did something that I never thought we would do is we, we just kind of uh, created um, uh, electronic letterhead and we hardly use letterhead anymore. I mean, we as lawyers, I mean, all of us used to print letterhead and envelopes and we still have stuff and I have a pretty red logo I had a designer create that I kind of think is cool. But it's all paperless now. It's very rare we send anything out. So I, I think one of the big pieces was going paperless. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of firms that haven't done it or let me comment about how they've done it or not really done it. But I think that was, you know, a big step. The, the, the web-based meetings uh, is a big step. And for us, that was nothing new with COVID. We had been doing web-based meetings for many, many years. I, I have a, a charitable effort. My wife and I speak all over the country uh, for several months every summer to raise awareness and money for chronic uh, disease and various charities that help people with chronic illness. And I ran my practice from the road for, for, for more than a decade already, 11 years. So um, uh, I think the big change was, was client perception. And I think it also, to be fair, it also changed lawyers' perceptions because now more lawyers are comfortable with the concept of doing things paperless as they were forced to. But, but let me comment on that and let me comment about the paperless. So I, I know many practitioners. I will not mention names to protect the guilty. Um, but their offices are paperless. So somebody in IT in, in their firm, because they're big enough to have an IT department, and this is not one colleague, this is many, you know, came up with whatever approach they were going to use to go paperless, and that's what they did, and it was basically forced down everyone's throat. And what these colleagues of mine still do to this very day, and it's many of them, 
is they'll have an administrative person print every document and set up a red weld. And for young people like Rachel and, and, and Brent, red welds are these sort of brownish red cardboard things that you put file folders in. And if you don't know what they are, if you go to the Smithsonian, they may have a few there you can, you can identify. But, but they'll have all their files printed and put into a red weld because that's still how they work. Now, I'm an old geezer, so I, I always loved yellow highlighting. But let me tell you something. When I get a PDF, I convert it to Word, and I use the yellow highlight function, and it's just the same. In fact, it's even better because I got all these different colors, and I can change, and I can move, and it's dramatically more efficient. So I think that in the, ze- the zealousness to go paperless in, in many firms, they didn't really get the practitioners on board or comfortable. When we did it, um, I, I used the swimming pool approach. Are you, uh, Rachel and Brent, familiar with the swimming pool approach? No, I'm not. So enlighten me. Well, I will enlighten you. The swimming pool approach is a, a, a methodology that is, is, is very useful for many things in life, including technology. So, Rachel, I don't know if this is politically incorrect, but it's, you know, I'll just tell you. So, I, I was uh, out in Arizona last summer, and Brent and I went swimming. So, Brent put on his speedo, he got on the high board, and he dove right in. Me, I'm, 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 I'm the, I'm, I have a different approach. I went down to the kiddie pool end, you know, where all the people are wearing those little uh, duck rubber ducky uh, uh, floats, and I put my toe in, then I put my foot in. Then I put my ankle in, then up to my knee, then up to my thigh. And then I got in, jumped in up to my waist and slowly got in. That's what I refer to as the swimming pool approach. See, Brent, you know, he's a daredevil, off the high dive, right in. Me, nah, especially if the water's cold. Then I really do the swimming pool approach. But you see, with technology, I find that if people would only do the swimming pool approach and do it in phases, and you got to define the phases as they're comfortable for you and your practice because everyone's different. Everyone's practice is different, Right. You know, you could do estate planning where you have a large, high volume of um, wills and rev trusts, and that's the core of your base. You could have an estate planning practice, which is more high-end and very boutique and you have a much smaller number of large clients where nothing is similar. Every client is fairly unique. So the way you, you want to digitize, automate, and, and adopt technologies is going to be very different depending on your practice and your personality and your comfort level. So, so – um, I think that's important. I know during COVID, I remember seeing a number of colleagues where they actually went in their offices on a regular basis, even when they weren't supposed to, or they had clerks shuttling red welds full of uh, uh, files, paper files, to and from their homes or wherever they were working because they just couldn't transition to an electronic environment. So for people like that, don't go cold turkey because it, it'll be very uncomfortable. Go step by step and, and move into it. So I think I think that the key changes over the last decade, and there's many others, is the reduction in paper, uh, moving initially to paper less, and that's what we had done. But I think with with COVID, we really became pretty much no paper, um, and I'm thrilled about that because it's just it's more cost effective, it's easier, it eliminates all kinds of administrative tasks. You don't have to go to an admin person and say, could you print this letter and proofread this letter? You proofread it and you print it. You, you don't print it. You print it to PDF and you email it. You're done. Or you scrub it and send it out in Word so clients can mark it up. Um, it eliminates all sorts of really, in retrospect, were, were unnecessary costs and time delays that, that we used to all look at. Um, web meetings have come into their own, but I'll, I'll make a comment about that. 
I think a lot of people are still, it's like a novelty to them. I mean, it amazes me that this has been going on with COVID for, for a year and a half and people still get on. They can't figure out their camera or they, they, they forget to like, you know, they have something hanging from their chin from lunch, you know, it, get, get with it. So, so, you know, it's, it doesn't have to be a novelty. So for example, the vast majority of web meetings that I hold with clients, I don't even turn the camera on. There's no reason to see somebody. It's a distraction. If I have a memo that I'm reviewing with the client or if I'm creating a memo for a new client, I do it all electronically and type while they're watching. Why? Because if I type somebody's name wrong or get a birth date wrong or miss something, they can correct it right away. You don't have to go back and forth. It keeps the client really hyper-focused on what we're discussing because if we're talking about non-reciprocal spousal lifetime access trust, which we're not going to get into because I'm sure everybody knows what they are, if not – uh, that'll be a different webinar. But, you know, if I'm going through the different variations of, of uh, slats and daps and spats and all that kind of stuff, the client sees my notes. If they have a question, they ask the question. I find it's much easier for a client to stay focused, absorb information. And as I lay out the memo in front of the client, it helps me keep things organized because I'm doing it as we go. And I don't want people looking at, you know, the video, uh, you know, the, the video images of each other. I want them focused on the topic. So, you know, web meetings have really taken over, but I think many of us could do it much more efficiently and um, use them in more interesting ways. I found, for example, pre-COVID that um, I really, and I and as soon as we can get back to it, I will. I like meeting a client face-to-face when I can. I just feel there's a better human contact, you can read them better, they can read me better, you know, the body language and stuff on a webcam is just not the same. But even if we get back to full in-person meetings for whenever, reviewing a document, my preference is to do it online, not in person. Because you're looking, they're sit, the client's sitting at home or wherever, their office, wherever they're comfortable looking at the document. They stay very focused. And if they have a question, uh, I take notes on it. So in terms of protecting me as a practitioner, by showing that I've taken notes throughout the document, the client can never say we didn't review the document. If a client has a minor change, like I have the wrong middle initial for somebody, right, those little nuances, I correct it right there. And uh, I'll tell you my low-tech uh, technique, which is really very useful. I put a couple of hashtags and write a note like, you know, ser- global search and correct el- elsewhere or everywhere. And then I'll deal with it when I go back. So my, my low-tech thing when I work on documents is I'll put a hashtag, and those are things that before I finalize a document, I always search for hashtags so those open items come up. And if I put a note to myself, I'll put a hashtag before and after it so we don't leave that note accidentally inside of a document. We don't use the note um, uh, notebox features or a lot of the other esoteric stuff. I find just typing in the text with a hashtag is the simplest, most efficient way to, to do things, and it's very easy to correct or convert that into a, a correction to a document. So, so you know, I think web meetings, uh, remote work, paperless, I think that's really transformed the practice of law. I think it's changed the, the, the I don't know if ratio is the right descriptive term, but the ratio of administrative staff to legal staff that you need. And I think that a lot of lawyers, and I still see it to this day, where um, I'm having a, a call with somebody and um, uh, to, or an email with somebody to schedule a call, and they'll email their administrative assistant to schedule a meeting. Why? What I do, we, we don't use Zoom. We use uh, GoToMeeting, which is part of the LogMeIn suite. We've just been using it for many, many years, and especially in the beginning when Zoom had some, some – uh, uh, security issues, uh, I thought LogMeIn was good, but 
you know, we're very happy with it, so why change it? And I like their webinar offering, which we'll come to uh, in, a, in a bit. But um, why would I email somebody and ask somebody to email other people and set up a meeting? I look at my calendar. I don't like the Doodle stuff. I, I just find that's pretty inefficient. For those that aren't familiar with Doodle, it's one of these little online tools that you can, like, send a whole bunch of people uh, dates for a meeting and everyone can like doodle in the, the dates that work for them and then you can go back and look and set up a meeting. I just go to my calendar. It takes a nanosecond. I blocked a couple of dates and if I have the person on the, on the email then, I'll tell them the dates. If I have them on the phone, I'll say, how about this date? If they say yes, I set up the web meetings like that. It takes two seconds. It, it's less time to set up the web meeting yourself than to email an admin to email the person and set up the web meeting. And you don't have anything lost in the translation because you just did it. But I think that, that there's a, a perception amongst many of our colleagues because they've spent decades and decades working in a certain way that that's the efficient way to work. And, and you kind of have to let go and embrace what the newness is because things that you feel may be beneath you, they're not actually beneath you. You can do them in less time yourself than asking someone to do them. And I'll transition to a, a, another uh, area where I see technology transforming things. In the old days, and, and Brent and certainly Rachel, you guys are way too young. I don't know if you even remember these days. In the old days, I had a, a bookkeeper would print bills, print on paper. That's the thin sheets of, of like wood from trees that you would actually write on because I don't know if you remember that stuff. And I would get them hole punched and put in a big, giant, loose-leaf binder, three-ring binder, and I would get my red pen, and I would sit at home in the armchair, and I would mark up my bills, then give them back, and she would input the corrections and generate new bills, and on and on and on. All that stuff can be done electronically. In fact, as I've done more and more of it, I find more and more efficient ways just in saving documents that I can do every aspect of billing for my practice. And we have a small practice. It's just a couple of us. But I can do billing soup to nuts in about the same time now that I used to just manually mark the stuff up if you just get creative about it. And one of the things, for example, that I discovered recently, which kind of surprised me because I just hadn't thought of it, we now email bills to every client. And when I said we're almost no paper, one of the things that we still do with paper, and I know lawyers will love this, we still send out a physical bill. It doesn't take a lot of effort. It doesn't take a lot of expense. And I just, you know, I like to get paid. I don't know. Brent, you know, Brent does it more because he enjoys just practicing. He doesn't care if he gets paid or not. But I like to get paid. And I find that sending out the paper bill is useful because I'm sure all of you like me get about a zillion email a day, maybe more. Rachel, what, two zillion? I mean, the, the emails that come across our, our inboxes, it just, and I, I, I unsubscribe religiously every day to a couple of things. I make a point to doing it no matter how busy. I always find something to unsubscribe to. So hopefully I'm getting off more lists than I'm getting on, but it's, it's, it's like a never ending battle. But, but by sending the paper bills, I find it's something that does get attention. And I will tell you one other paper thing I do in a second. But one of the things I discovered when I'm emailing billing, I used to have an admin do it, but now I do it. Why? I create a little template and I revise it every month. That's the email that I just paste into an email. It's click, click, you know, control A to copy it and then control V to paste it. Not hard, right? But because I know what's going on with each client that I'm billing, I tailor those letters to the client. It doesn't take but a minute, but this way I can use the billing 
email, covering email that sends out the bill, not only to give them all the stuff that I give them in terms of information, caveats, updates, but I also can add a sentence or two or three, and often it's not much, about the status of their work, information I'm waiting on. So it's a wonderful way to communicate with the clients, and we save all those emails because everything's saved forever. We have a backup to a data cloud that uh, we paid. It was it was insignificant, and now we got everything for the rest of eternity. I don't know how long that is, but there's no rule against perpetuities in data land. But we got everything backed up forever, but now I have a record of all these emails that we send. And by the way, we don't just use billing to bill and collect, which is obviously the priority. We use it as a means of communication with the client. And this is also how technology and digitizing has transformed practice. I don't write, like in the old days, I used to see somebody TCW slash client, right? Telephone call with client. Useless information. I'll write call with client, and you can abbreviate and, and, and make it turn into words. I mean, it's not a big deal. But I'll say what we talked about. Discuss pros and cons of using a SPAT versus ADAPT or hybrid DAT. Now, the client has a reference of what we talked about, which makes them, I think, much more likely to pay the bill. It takes a few seconds of extra time per entry, but it also gives me a track record, a history record. So if I ever want to go back and see what I did with the client, all I do is bring up in the billing system a, a, a slip listing for that client, and I can even do it by date if I want only a certain date, like, you know, just the last year, and I'll know exactly what's going on. So there's simple sort of off-label, easy use is a thing. Another example, um, in our billing, the, the, when I send out that email, I'll write it, one email that we use for all clients every month, but I'll quickly tailor it a little, as I mentioned, which I think an admin can't, I know an admin can't do, and I think clients appreciate getting something a little personalized. But, for example, in the environment we're in right now, you know, mid-2021, um, where there's all this uncertainty over what may change in the tax laws, I'll write a little summary of whatever's going on. I'll put some caveats in that we can't guarantee that we'll get any work done before the law changes because, hey, we don't know when the law is going to change. Rachel told me, Brent, that she has a uh, Ouija board that still works. Mine burnt out. So I can't well, I'm, I'm looking forward to making use of it. I don't know why she's been keeping that a secret from me. Well, that's, that's why her work's so much better than yours, Brent. She's got the Ouija <laughs> board, you know. But, but, you know, it's a great way to protect yourself. It's a great way to inform clients. We put footers on bills. We have two segments of footers, and it's a simple electronic thing. It takes a few minutes before each bill to update them. So one segment is all the admin things. Like if you got a complaint about this bill, you got to tell us in 30 days. If you don't pay in 60 days, we stop work. You know, all the admin stuff that, that people like on their bills. I have, very importantly, that there are no guarantees in estate planning, right? There's really no certainty in, in so much of what we do. So I have some standard provisions on that because in some of the ugly malpractice cases that have come up in recent years, one of the big complaints uh, some of the plaintiffs were making is the lawyer didn't apprise them that there was risk. Now, I can't imagine any lawyer not telling every client that there's risk with almost anything. I mean, the basic life insurance trust we don't know for sure if it's a grant or trust, not with 100% certainty. There's so many different views. Everything's uncertain. So I just put it in writing. And then the second component is just current updates. So, for example, um, just recently this Morissette case came out on split-dollar life insurance. So I put a squib on it. Whether it applies or doesn't apply to the particular client, it's showing that we're keeping them current, giving them information. And over the course of, of working on any client matter, there's lots of updates, lots of caveats, which I think is informative to the client's. And it's protective of us as practitioners. And I don't think, I don't think most of us do enough 
to try to protect ourselves, right? We're working, saving clients millions and tens of millions of dollars, but it shouldn't be our liability if there's there's risks associated with that. So putting these caveats, it's an off-label use of billing. Tailoring a letter is an, an email, covering email is an off-label use. But with technology, this stuff takes literally almost no time. I think it's really helpful to clients and very protective for us as practitioners. Now, I, I, I know I'm rattling on, but you're not interrupting me, so I'm going to keep going. It's good I didn't have coffee today. I'd really be going. But um, I said there's another place where I use actual paper, and I'll tell you what I do with that. So I do a quarterly newsletter, which is, yes, again, past due, and i got to get it done. But I do a quarterly newsletter that we email out to everybody. I still send it as hard copy paper to um, all my clients and all my prospective clients. And we do that simply in Outlook. We have a cat- categories, and we have a category for client, a category for prospect. And I send it out to them in hard copy because as a lawyer, if a client moves to a new state, I pay the extra postage to get a return service back to me. So if a client moves from New York to Florida, they're going to get a letter from me saying, hey, I got the newsletter return saying you moved to Florida, and I mail it to Florida. And if you've, in fact, moved to Florida, you got to revise all your documents for Florida law. You cannot rely on the documents I did in New York. Now, I think that's a great thing to do. One, it's protective of me as a practitioner. I don't think I have an obligation. I don't think any of us have an obligation to tell somebody that. But if I know and I tell them, all the better. They can't complain when things don't work. And usually, you know, so many clients never come back to us lawyers. I don't know why. I mean, we're all lovable creatures. But clients sometimes don't like to come back for decades and decades. Uh, I, I think their hang-up is often that we bill them for our time, right? Big surprise. That's how we make a living. But um, – if we send them a letter and say, hey, by the way, your documents need to be updated for Florida law, and oh, by the way, the will you did 22 years ago, you really shouldn't be relying on anyhow. It's good for us, and it gets goodwill from clients, and oftentimes when somebody gets a letter like that, they call up and say, hey, Marty, can you help me? I said, yeah, I'd be happy to. Now that you're in Florida, I can still work with you, but I'll have to have Florida co-counsel, and you can have Florida co-counsel review the documents and planning I prepare for Florida law and supervise the signing. And I'll call a colleague in Florida and say, would you be happy to help me? And they, they always are. And it's a wonderful way to get old clients back, protect yourself, and get more business. But again, what did it take? Sending a physical newsletter. And by the way, I don't think, and I haven't re- looked at it in a long time, but I don't think it's changed because ethics rules often are behind the times, right, until there's a case or something that makes them change. Um, I think the ethics rules still provide that, you, you know, a, a communication with a client is, a, for, is a, a mailing to last known physical address. I don't think they have anything about email. So it's protective to stay in touch with clients. They can't say I wasn't trying to keep in touch with them. And by the way, what I use, and I'm happy to plug them because it's a wonderful company, there's a printing company uh, called Printing for Less in uh, Montana. Wonderful company, really incredible in terms of service and pricing. Uh, it's all powered by wind energy and everything, so they're very environmentally conscious. If, if, if that's meaningful to you, it is to me. And I use them to, to print and mail and take care of the fulfillment. Um, so it's really not hard to do. And we use a program called CG Exporter that ex- extracts uh, the data from Outlook and sends them a, a .csv file, if I got the acronym or initials right, and bam, bam, in a few minutes, we, we got a mailing going. And I think a lot of practitioners don't take advantage of that. And that may segue to the second topic you wanted to talk about on business development. Well, let me let me pause you there because there's a lot of really good nuggets. I mean, first of all, anybody who's listening to this who is is running or administering a practice, a professional services practice, I think it goes beyond 
just a legal practice. Like you basically just created the roadmap for how to have an efficient modern practice. And all of those things are things that we have dealt with, partly because we came from an old style law firm and moved into a what essentially is a hybrid or or a remote law firm. And of course, in that transition, you have to go from an old firm that has paper and red walls and things into a new firm that doesn't have those things. And it only has electronic uh, systems. And our experience, to your point about client perception, much more than practitioner perception, is that almost all of our clients do not care. There have been a little, little bit of attrition of some clients who really couldn't function under a more digitized platform. They wanted things much more in writing. They wanted things much more sort of the old style. They wanted to always meet in person, which, um, you know, we're happy to meet people in person, but we, you know, we don't keep the same kind of office space that we used to. And, you know, some of those clients went elsewhere to more traditional law firms, which was fine. Uh, we don't we don't own any of the clients, so they can go wherever they want. But the the transition overall has been fine. And to your point about the the pandemic or more more sort of the the dispersed epic that we've lived through much more more so than the pandemic itself is that clients went for us went from everything that we do and meeting by video conference being novel to this is just the way everything works i mean i would say for the first uh two or three months you know march april may of of 2020 for every call that i had with clients that was a video conference because they were unfamiliar with the systems. After that, after they had done it once or twice, and everybody that they knew was doing these these video conferences, not an issue. Now clients are are able to use the systems efficiently, and I love them. To your point, Marty, because I can throw documents straight up on the screen. They can see exactly what's in the document. I can go from the document to a digital whiteboard. I can map things out for them if they're not getting it based on the way that the conversation is going. And I just have all these tools that I can use immediately right on the spot where before in a more traditional setup, I would have to have lined up the conference room and lined up all of the tools that I thought I was going to need to have physically in the room. And they need to be in the room at the exact right time before everybody showed up so that I could do all the things that I do now digitally at the drop of a hat whether I know that I'm going to need it or not. And I, I just, the efficiencies of it are off the chart for and, me. And in most firms, Brent, you'd have had to contact an admin person mm-hmm. who was in charge of the conference room and you would have booked yep. the conference room and then it wouldn't have been available the time you wanted to book it. So then you'd have to call the client back and reschedule it. The efficiencies of all of this are incredible. And I know a lot of practitioners have not embraced it or they're forced to sort of pretend to embrace it. But if if you just use the swimming pool approach I described earlier, I mean, it, it was kind of said in jest, but it's really not. you got to do things step by step. When we first went paperless, we started by just scanning current things we were working on. When we got the hang of that, then we decided to scan more things. And then when we got the hang of that, we started to look at, like, dead storage files, step by step. And by the way, Brent, I'd be happy to make available if anybody wants it. Um, and I, I don't know if this is okay, but my email address is shankman, S-H-E-N-K-M-A-N, at shankmanlaw.com. Um, if you have not gone paperless, you got to do it. Um, I'll be happy to send you a memo, an internal memo that I created that guided how we went paperless. I spent a lot of time before we started the process and outlined exactly what we were going to do with every off-site storage box. We had 500 crates of legal-size off-site dead storage boxes, and we went through them methodically, hand, hand by man, manually, uh, 
10 or 20 boxes at a time. And, um, you know, it's a laborious process, but we wanted to do it right. We didn't want to risk uh, uh, accidentally discarding, shredding client property. So any original documents were all returned to clients and so on. But I'll give you a memo that I did in my practice. And if you're estate planners, which is, uh, I think, kind of what this is targeted at, it's, it's specific for you. If you're not an estate planner, I think you can just kind of in- – infer from what we've done what works for your specific specialty well it it applies to the accountants i can say that for sure because i have so many conversations with accountants where we're looking for old documents and the response back is yeah it's in storage somewhere i'm going to have to go drive down to the storage unit and dig through doc dig through boxes to pull out those records and i'm like i don't understand how that's possible but okay you know when you have them it's not the way to fly folks no, no, that's great. We'll, and we'll put, uh, Marty, we'll put your, your email in the show notes too. So people who are looking for it and didn't quite catch it there when you said it, uh, it'll be in the show notes. They'll be able to find it easily. Well, let's chat a little bit about then the, the change to, uh, speaking to the world, I guess, which is sort of marketing slash business development, which even in the say 10, 11 years that I've been practicing, it seems like it is completely different now than it was when I, first started when i first started the idea of doing a even a webinar would have been very novel and i think people would have been resistant to it it's like no what you do is you rent out a room at some hotel and you mail out flyers and then anybody who happens to be available at that particular moment on that particular day will show up and they will get the message and then you just repeat and do that i mean that even when i was very, very early on in my career, that was the way things were done. And now I can't even imagine doing the, that. The depressing part about that, Brent, is I was way late in my career when we were doing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Showing the age factor there. And don't forget, you had to buy a nice lunch for everyone or they wouldn't yes. come. So the cost right. of doing that was pretty extensive. And as an attendee, I never liked those lunches anyhow. So uh, great, great, great topic, Brent. Let me let me see if I can give you like a one or two minute overview of, of some of the way I approach marketing, which will be very different than many other people and use technology to do it. And it's transformed marketing for me as an attorney. And I think it's, it's, it's ditto the same for probably all professional practitioners. So I've been doing webinars for a very long time, and I'm glad I got on the bandwagon early. Uh, when COVID hit, I actually increased the number of webinars I was doing. And I did that because I felt that practitioners were really thirsting for knowledge and help because it was it's a terrifying time and no one knew what would happen. It turns out we as lawyers overall probably did very good as estate planners even, you know, better than many lawyers because we stayed busy because of the perspective changes in the law. But but what what we did is um We've done webinars for a long time, and I'll tell you my formula. It's top secret, so don't tell anybody. Keep it um, – I try to give as much practical, useful information as I can in the hour of the program. No advertising, no promotion. I'm just giving it away. And it's a different mindset than I think many people still have. And um, a, a printer that I use, a fulfillment house called uh, Printing for Less, which I mentioned earlier in the segment – I was speaking to the founder of the company many years ago, and he said, most people don't get it. In the old days, if you controlled a document, a form, a technique, that gave you power and ability to gain economic benefit. And he says it's really been transformed by technology to now where it's the exact opposite. The more good information that you can disseminate to the more people that you can disseminate it to, the more power you get. And maybe that's the whole theory behind Brent's podcast. 
but I, I do webinars and during COVID I, I ramped it up and tried to get more things on like working remotely, signing documents electronically, all the things we were all grappling with. I did webinars on them to help practitioners and we grew our mailing list, uh, very substantially. The, the number of people attending programs to my amazement actually grew significantly. We had many webinars with more than 2,500 people registering for them, which is, is pretty significant. And um, uh, that's the formula. Give great free advice. If you're going to market to clients like that, um, same concept. Free advice, just keep it shorter and non-technical. And that's what we've done. So we have uh, an electronic newsletter that, as I said earlier, we mail physically to clients because I think it addresses ethical issues and gets us current addresses so we can properly legally communicate with clients. We have uh, um, uh, the webinars has really been the focus of my stuff. We post all that content to our website. You can feel free to take a look, shankmanlaw, S-H-E-N-K-M-A-N-L-A-W.com. And I have a free legal website called LawEasy, L-A-W-E-A-S-Y.com. And we just keep adding information to it. And it's like, you know, the old raindrop that created the Grand Canyon, right, or the little river that created the Grand Canyon. Just just do what you can and keep posting. I was speaking to Rachel at the beginning of this podcast, and I think at this point you got 60, 70 or more podcasts up. So, you know, it's like the raindrop. You just keep adding to it. And it's an incredible database. I think at this point we have over a 100 webinars posted to Shankman Law, and it's a really substantial library of information that I hope helps lots of practitioners. And that's that's my only goal, help you practice. And um, by doing good deeds, we find that we get referrals uh, periodically from people all over the country, and um, it, it works well. Um, the newsletter helps. We have other stuff in process that is, is still being worked on. Uh, I want to do a, a quarterly email blast where I have links to all the different videos and webinars and things that I post and articles uh, so that uh, there's more. Uh, I write articles for Limeberg, uh, which is really one of the better known uh, electronic newsletters for the profession and lots of other places. And um, we try to email those out to clients. Oh, and by the way, when we send a bill, every bill we email has a free article with it. So if I can't do an article, you, and if you don't publish or you haven't, uh, you know, that's something we could do a program on just telling you how to do that. But write a short memo. Take a client letter, sanitize it, and, and make it into a short planning memo. Every bill that goes out of my office has a free article attached. It's um, There's a book called um, Nudge, Nudge, uh, I think is the name of it. And it talks about, like, if you remember the old Cracker Jack box, right, we as kids would, you know, do anything to get our parents to get that box of cereal or Cracker Jack so we can get that half a penny toy that was inside. You know, sometimes little things make people perceive things differently. So my hope is that by giving a free article or memo with every single bill, clients understand that I'm not just billing them. I'm trying to help them. And I hope that message gets across. But those are things that we used to do physically with mailed bills, but we stopped after COVID because you know, mailing out an article, printing it and stapling it and collating it and stamping it was was really a cost and a hassle. But we continue to do it electronically, and um, we've gotten very good response for that. There's lots of ways to give value add using technology to your clients, and I think they'll really appreciate it. We use MailChimp for our email blasts. Uh, I have a pretty decent presence on LinkedIn, and it's the same raindrop approach. We've clicked on different um, 
um, uh, you know, invites and invite people. I try to do that every few weeks, even though I'm so busy and I don't need to do it. And we've grown um, my number of LinkedIn contacts to close to 9,000 contacts. So between the extensive database we have on MailChimp for our email blast for newsletters and LinkedIn where we post lots of free videos and articles, no advertising. Nobody wants to hear, you know, who had a new baby or who got a promotion or who got some stupid award. Nobody cares. The only thing people want from lawyers, Brent, is what? You took free too long. advice. There you go. That's all they want. They don't want Weird. our good looks. They don't want our no. humor. They just want free advice. So you know what? If you do it in the form of an article or posting on LinkedIn, you know, and you always put caveats, right? We protect ourselves. But people appreciate it. And I think, you know, I hope I've built up a reputation that if you're getting something from me, it's just going to be good free advice because I'm not selling anything. And I think that low-key approach and that helpful approach uh, wins out. Um, we have a free legal website, laweasy.com, L-A-W-E-A-S-Y.com, if you want to see what we've done there. Uh, we used to do video clips in my office. Now we just record webinars. Uh, we record things at less than 10 minutes because then we can post them on LinkedIn. LinkedIn doesn't seem to let you post anything that's 10 minutes or longer, so we try to stay a little under the 10 minutes, and we post them there. We have about 150 video clips there I'm planning. I interview lots of colleagues and friends and just kind of like what Brent is doing with the podcast and try to, again, disseminate free information. And um, we post them on LinkedIn to add to the presence there. And it all just starts to roll together and create, um, I think, a, a great marketing thing. Um, Brent, if you like, if this introduction you think is useful to any of your listeners, why don't we do a whole show just on, on electronic marketing and I can go through some of yeah. the details and stuff. Uh, absolutely. And and again, anybody listening to your explanation of how you're doing digital marketing and business development and just trying to add value to everybody, it's a it is the roadmap and your your friend who's who's got the publishing company is hundred percent right. When information is not the Access to information is not the issue. Aggregating information is where the value is. And Very different. And it sounds like you do a really, really good job of that. So, well, we were let aware that you make, do a good job of that. Let me just that. interrupt you and make one really important point. Just like yeah. I said when we talked about adopting technology, mm-hmm. I told you what I've done for my practice. You have to figure out what works for you, for your comfort level, for your skill level, and for the clients you're targeting. Everyone's different. So if you have a practice that's focused on Medicaid planning, for more moderate wealth people, the way you market should be very different than the way somebody that's got a boutique that's looking for 25 and $100 million clients markets. Uh, some of the concepts will be the same, but some should be very different. You know, you may want, if you have an older audience, to actually do something more in print and paper because people may not be as comfortable with um, uh, the technology. But again, I've just told you what I do, but you should really interpret it as to what works for you. My, my answer works for me, but it may not be the same for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. We, we really appreciate it. We, we know you're busy and we, we appreciate your time so much. So we'll, we'll include your contact information in the show notes. And again, we cannot thank you enough for taking time to chat with us today. Thank uh, you. It was, it was fun. Let's, uh, let's do it again if you think it's helpful. Absolutely. Take care. Hey listeners. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog. If you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about and also follow us on social media at wealth and law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.